From the Salvation Army, welcome to the Holiness Podcast with Lieutenant Colonel Vern Jewett. In this monthly Bible study, we'll be exploring God's gift of holiness, which is offered to every Christian. To download this month's study guide, visit us at salvationarmysoundcast.org holiness. Hi, this is Lieutenant Colonel Vern Jewett, and this is the Holiness Podcast, and we are so glad that you're with us today. Today, I want to address the saints who are listening to this podcast. Now, before you say that that's not you, I want you to stop and realize that if you know Jesus as your Savior, then you are a saint. That means you are a holy one. We're going to be exploring this idea. The Apostle Paul made it perfectly clear that this was the case. In 1 Corinthians 1-2, as he wrote to the church in Corinth, right at the beginning of the letter, this is what he says. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy. You see, if you're part of the church then you are sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be holy. In Ephesians, the first chapter, first verse, to the saints, the holy ones, in Ephesus, the faithful in Christ Jesus. In Philippians 1, 1, to all the saints in Christ Jesus at Philippi, to Colossians 1, 2, to the holy and faithful brothers in Christ at Colossae. You see, to be a Christian means to be saved, justified, and sanctified. Now that may be a surprise to some, but the truth is, when you are saved, and if you are saved, you are also sanctified. It simply means that you are set apart And that being set apart includes the indwelling in your life of the Holy Spirit. That always has been salvation in its fullness in the gospel in the New Testament. Last month, we mentioned and structured a bit of our teaching around Acts 26.18, the call to the Apostle Paul by Jesus, who said to him, you'll remember, I am sending you to them to open their eyes, turn them from darkness to light, from the power of Satan to the power of God, so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. Two things happen. When you receive Jesus into your heart, you are justified and you are sanctified. Now, the Holy Spirit is in your life. Romans 8, 9 says, And if anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he does not belong to Christ. So the truth that ties this all together, it's even part of the introductory statement to our podcast. Now, as we're finishing two years of monthly podcasts, we mentioned that 
the gift of holiness is given through his Son to all believers. And we have spoken many times of the end of the Gospel of Luke and the beginning of the book of Acts, both written by Luke, who tell us that the disciples were instructed to wait until the gift God was going to give them arrived. And that gift was the coming in power of the Holy Spirit. Now, friends, how do we know if we've received this gift? How do we evidence if we have received this gift? Because the gift has been given. The question, I believe, for Christians is, have we received it? Because a response is required of us. There are several ways and measuring devices in the New Testament that help us understand our responsibility to receive holiness, the gift of the Spirit, and to grow in holiness. And eventually, the possibility is there that we can be completely, entirely sanctified. But one of the ways, one of the lenses to look at the question, have we received it, is are we following Jesus? Are we following Jesus? That is one of the prominent themes of the book of Mark, and today's lesson is on holiness and discipleship. And discipleship in Mark is expressed in terms of following. I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Mark. Now, if you don't have a Bible in front of you to get the full impact of uh, our study today, you're going to need your Bible, even if you can get a New Testament, because we are looking at the entire Gospel of Mark as our textual passage And yes, we can do that in 40 minutes, and we will, because we're dealing with the uniqueness of Mark's gospel. It's interesting, at the beginning of the church, eventually the church, through its councils, decided, under the guidance of the Holy Spirit, that we should have four gospels in the New Testament. Now, many of you will know that Mark and Luke and Matthew have a lot of content in common. We call them the synoptic gospels, and we tend to see them as a group. And there was a Christian leader early in the church named Tatian who wrote the Diatessaron, which was literally an attempt to take them and put everything together into one gospel out of the four. But the church said, thanks, but no thanks. We need to let each gospel speak to us uniquely. Now, right from the beginning, the gospel of Mark is different. So I invite you to turn to Mark 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel about Jesus Christ, the Son of God. This opening sentence speaks Mark's purpose powerfully and clearly. One sentence, 12 words, short, profound. 
Many scholars actually believe that after Mark had written his gospel, he went back and wrote this first verse as the title sentence. So we know right from the start that this is the beginning of the gospel of Jesus, the good news of Jesus, who is the Christ, that is the Messiah, the Old Testament Messiah, and who is the Son of God, which is a striking and important phrase for Mark. Then Mark begins with his prologue, as it is written in the prophets, Behold, I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way. And with a conflation of Isaiah and Malachi, he introduces John the Baptist as the preparer of the way for another one. And then Jesus comes on the scene in verse 9. He's baptized and identified and takes up the way John has prepared and immediately starts calling disciples to follow him and teaching about discipleship. So here are the major themes of Mark. Following Jesus, discipleship, and the way of the cross. Mark is presenting us a picture of life as a pilgrimage. It's a picture we can understand and relate to. We are following Jesus. We are walking on the same road and going down the same path that Jesus went down. It's interesting when Christ said, follow me, in Mark 1.17, it's also recorded in Matthew, he used a special word that underscores that followers are to embrace him as the essence of their existence. The word literally means to come after. Now the other 70 times that, that the word follow is used in the New Testament, there's a different word. But this word used only on the occasion when James, Peter, and John, and James and Andrew stopped their world, left their nets, and went after following Jesus. It is striking that this word is directional. It means literally, you are coming after me everywhere I go. It, it means to position Christ as our singular passionate pursuit in all things. Now we're going to make three observations and I'm going to present three possible scenarios to us. You know, the end result of all Bible study is application. We need to be able to apply God's Word to our lives. And this particular study and podcast is going to ask all of us to introspect to ask the question, have we received the gift that has been given to us? The Holy Spirit lives in us. Have we given him reign and rule in our lives? So three observations and three scenarios will be the structure of our lesson today.
Here's the first observation. This is where you're going to need your Bible. In Mark, amazement is not recognition. If there is one word used to describe the disciples' following of Jesus, it is the word amazed. And it is found all through the gospel. It first appears in verse uh, chapter 1, verse 21. They went to Capernaum, and when the Sabbath came, Jesus went into the synagogue and began to teach. The people were amazed at his teaching, because he taught them as one who had authority, not as teachers of the law. So as Jesus begins to teach and to preach and to heal and to exercise demons, we're going to find that they are constantly amazed. If you just go a few verses down, chapter 1, verse 27. He had just cast out the evil spirit from, from a man, came out of him violently with a shriek. And verse 27, right here in chapter 1, says the people were all so amazed that they asked each other, what is this? A new teaching and with authority? He even gives orders to evil spirits, and they obey him. Chapter 2, go down to verse 12. He has just healed the paralytic. You know the story where the disciples had to drop the paralytic man down through the roof in order to get into the presence of Jesus. And it says the paralytic got up and took his mat and walked out in full view of them all after Jesus had healed him. And that verse says, this amazed everyone. And they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. Now the word amazed, half of the usages in the New Testament are found in Mark. And a third of the uses in the whole Bible of the word are found in Mark. They are amazed, but they do not recognize Jesus for who he is. Now, you and I, as the readers, we know who he is. But a pattern begins in chapter 4 and then gets very pronounced in chapters 6, 5, 6, 7, and 8, actually, <clears throat> The disciples are amazed and are physically following Jesus, but they do not know who they are following. Let me just point out a few places. In chapter 5, verses 18 to 20, you see why you need your Bible right here. 18 to 20, as Jesus was getting into the boat, the man who had been demon-possessed begged to go with him. Jesus did not let him, but said, go home to your family. And tell them how much the Lord has done for you and how he has had mercy on you. So the man went away and began to tell in the Decapolis, the ten cities, how much Jesus had done for him. And all the people were amazed. Look at chapter 6, verse 1. When the Sabbath began, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many who heard him were amazed. Now, in chapter 6, an interesting thing begins to happen. Beginning with verse 48, this is the story of Jesus walking on the water. I want to read just two or three verses. He saw the disciples straining at the oars, starting with verse 48, because the wind was against them. 
about the fourth watch of the night, he went out to them, walking on the lake. He was about to pass by them, but when they saw him walking on the lake, they thought he was a ghost. They cried out, because they all saw him and were terrified. Immediately he spoke to them and said, Take courage, it is I, don't be afraid. Then he climbed into the boat with them, and the wind died down. They were completely amazed. <laughs> for they had not understood about the loaves. Now, he had just fed the 5,000 on the hillside. And then here's the new element. They were completely amazed, for they had not understood about the loaves. Their hearts were hardened. Now, that really caught my attention. You know, I was raised uh, active in the church as a child. So I was in Sunday school most of my, all of my growing up years. And I heard about people being hard of heart. I heard about hardness of heart. But, you know, somehow I thought that was just the scribes and the Pharisees and the Sadducees. You know, those groups of people that were uh, enemies of Jesus, it appeared to be. But here Jesus, here it's recorded, Mark records, that the disciples' hearts, even though they were amazed, were hardened. And then I discovered the word hearts being hardened, that phrase is used five times in Mark, once of the scribes and Pharisees. The second time of the forefathers of Israel, when Jesus was teaching about divorce, you may remember, he said that God allowed divorce only because of the hardness of hearts of the people of Israel. The other three times, it's the disciples whose hearts are hardened. So, three times that happens again in chapter 7, beginning with verse 17. Chapter 8, beginning with verse 14. They're amazed at Jesus teaching and miracles, but they don't recognize who he is, and they're rebuked by Jesus for their lack of understanding and their lack of recognition. Okay, here is the first scenario. Some people in the church, I dare say some people listening today, are observers. There's a proximity to Christ. There's a physical following of the church. Maybe even an amazement. But there is no recognition of who Jesus really is. That's where we find the disciples as we come to chapter 8 and the turning point, which we're going to look at very clearly. It was a great uh, discovery for me and a, a profoundly uh, upsetting one for a little while when I noticed as I studied the Gospel of Mark that the disciples are consistently portrayed as failures in Mark. In fact, right to the very end of the Gospel, they are portrayed as failures. If you want to do an interesting and enlightening task, read through the Gospel of Mark and make two lists. 
One lists all the positive things about the disciples that are said by Jesus, and the second, all the negative things. You will find that the negative list is very long, and the positive list only has two or three items on it. Some people are simply observers. I think there may be some people listening who already have a sense. Even if you're in church, even if you're in proximity to Jesus, that you're really not following Jesus. Some might have an appalling sense that you are not on the way. Of course, we may be remembering Matthew's words, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be that go in, because straight is the gate and narrow is the way which leads unto life, and few there be that find it. But as we're reading Mark, we may sense that we're not on the way. Are things out of joint in your inner life, in your spirit? Do you not have a sense of God's sustaining, backing, approving of your way of life? Maybe there's even a sense of futility about it all. And even if you're attending church regularly, our churches are filled with people who have a sense of not getting anywhere in their lives, of being up against it. Sometimes you cannot walk in life with any buoyancy until you know for sure that you are on the way. You can be as close to Jesus, even standing in amazement as the disciples, but there can be a numbness to the way. I've been a pastor for 50 years, and I know that the familiarity of church can add to the anesthetic. One of my favorite stories from E. Stanley Jones, a famous missionary, uh, was that he often referred to a canary he had that wouldn't sing until after it had its bath. <laughs> Our souls are like that. Life simply won't sing. Something, something lies songless within us unless we are on the way. Unless we're, we have, we're bathed with the cleansing of our fears and uncertainties and guilts and really follow Jesus. So if amazement is not recognition and some people are just observers, the second truth is, the second observation is, that recognition is not understanding. And now we come to what may be considered our textual passage. It's the story in Mark. Many scholars say that up to this point, there's one uh, Mark. And after this, you'll notice tremendous changes in the language and the response Jesus calls for. It's like reading two different books on either side of this story. And the verses I'm talking about are verses... Chapter 8, verses 27. We're going to read down to 34. Many of you will be familiar with this. It's the story of Peter's confession of Christ. 
Beginning with verse 27, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, Who do people say I am? They replied, Some say John the Baptist. Some say Elijah. Some say one of the prophets. But what about you, he asked. Who do you say I am? Now, it's interesting. Remember, you and I as readers already know. Because of one one, that he is the Messiah, the Christ. And it's the first time, actually, that Christ is mentioned since one one. And you have a feeling that maybe the disciples have turned things around, and now they're finally going to know what we know. <laughs> well, Peter answered, You are the Christ. Then Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Let's stop there. This was a remarkable, real, and true confession. Peter blurts it out, You are the Messiah. Is it accurate? Absolutely yes. Did Peter understand it? Absolutely no. It was a confession without content. And when Jesus begins to give it content, Peter now rebukes Jesus. It's the first time a disciple has opposed anything Jesus has said. Many scholars believe this is the watershed of the Gospel of Mark. And he began to teach them. We pick up at verse 31. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, chief priests, and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You did not have in mind the things of God, but the things of men. What an interesting response, isn't it? Peter blurts out, You are the Messiah. But when Jesus explained what that meant, Peter rebukes Jesus. It's the first time a disciple opposes anything that Jesus has said. And Peter, operating from a human framework, cries out and says, No, you must not suffer and die. You see, his confession and recognition was without understanding. And what a strong response from Jesus, who said, Get thee behind me, Satan. For thou savorest not the things that be of God, but the things that be of men. The message is going to be loud and clear. Jesus is going to speak to us now about what it means to be a follower of him. Reading on with, beginning with verse 34, Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, If anyone would come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. 
For whoever wants to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for mine and the gospel's sake will save it. Here is scenario number two. <clears throat> you and I can recognize Jesus as Christ, but insist with Peter on putting it into a human framework and say, no, following Jesus doesn't require suffering and death. Being a disciple doesn't mean that. Only one person in the Gospel of Mark confesses Jesus as the Son of God with understanding besides the demons. And that was the Roman centurion at the cross. Not on the basis of his healing or his exorcism or his miracles, but seeing him on the cross. You see, some people are assenters. They assent to Jesus without understanding. Jesus makes it perfectly clear that we have to choose. I must follow him. I must take up my cross. I must deny myself and follow him. Let me say a word to you about being a disciple. When you read the gospel and read especially uh, uh, some of the passages we've been noticing, what Jesus says is, I want you to follow me. No conditions, no negotiations, no particulars, no uh, contractual exceptions. Just follow me. Joseph Stoll, in his wonderful book, Following Christ, says, unfortunately, we don't perceive ourselves as followers. Rather, usually, what do we call ourselves? Christians, believers, brothers and sisters are examples. But when you look at those terms, Christians, for example, can focus our attention on our privileges and our entitlements. But the title itself, Christian, does not forge a sense of calling of action, or of definition of what being a Christian is all about. The word believer can mean that we have chosen to believe in Christ and his gospel. But again, it fails to delineate what it actually means to live as a believer. What does a believer do besides assent to a system of belief? And brothers and sisters, I mean, it's very engaging and affirming and wonderful to call each other brothers and sisters in Christ, but that can focus our attention horizontally on our relationship with one another rather than our relationship with Christ. We're connected with each other sometimes like a club, activities, friendships, and projects. But followers of Jesus captures the essence of what it means to be a believing Christian. Some people are just assenters, recognizing Christ, but tempted to put a human framework on following Jesus in terms of our cultural norms. We've 
spoken many times and looked at many Christian leaders who observe about the church that we've let slide and slip into the culture of the American church the very non-Christian principles of success, position, power, financial success. We can assent to the gospel. It's a uh, it's like Peter who makes the divine framework fit into his own human framework. This passage cuts at the root of a triumphal understanding of Jesus and discipleship. It cuts at the root of a gospel of success. I'm remembering in April of 1985 in a kibbutz on the Sea of Galilee at the Holy Land Congress for the Salvation Army, it's the first and only time that uh, Salvationists, those who call the Salvation Army our church home, gathered together in the Holy Land. And we were in a kibbutz and General Jarl Wallström cautioned Salvationists again, against an adulterous blend of Jesus and success. Dr. David McKenna observed in his commentary on Mark that sermon after sermon extols secular success as the norm of Christian life and guarantees either freedom or relief from suffering, but Jesus says, not so. After reading those verses in chapter 8 in Jesus' response to Peter, all expectation of human relief for success is decimated. All possibility of human sufficiency is expunged. Some people want to adopt Jesus as their pal or their security. Here is the real rub of discipleship. Well, if in Mark, amazement is not recognition and recognition is not understanding, the final truth is clear. The third observation is that understanding is not following. From chapter 8, verse 34 on, to follow Jesus is no longer used in a general sense. Verse 38, the last verse of chapter 8 says, Whoever therefore shall be ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him also shall the Son of Man be ashamed when he cometh in the glory of the Father with the holy angels. Did you hear those words? Adulterous and sinful. This all has to do with fidelity. To whom are you faithful? Jesus calls us to a decision which is not an attractive option. In fact, in a human framework, it's scandalous. I choose not to gain the world. Whomever would preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospel, the same shall save it. If we die to self and human framework, then we can live a disciple's life and be made whole and discover who we are. So if understanding is not following, here is the third scenario. 
Some people are delayers. They understand who Jesus is, but seem to be living for the time when they can really make that response to Jesus that doesn't ever seem to come. They're delayed, they're waiting until the process is ended or the product is finished or all the problems are perfectly resolved. So we're like the man who hated his job but worked at it for 30 years waiting for retirement so he could begin to live. You remember the prayer of St. Francis. It is in giving that we receive. It is in pardoning that we are pardoned. And it is in dying that we are born to eternal life. And the truth here is for those who are delayers, it is in the following, in the living, in the process, in the relationship, in the struggle that we discover him in his presence. Not later, but now. The truth is that the disciples in Mark remain failures in the story. They all betray him. They all deny him. They all leave him after he is crucified because they either couldn't recognize who he was, they didn't understand, or they didn't follow. Now here's the good news. After the resurrection, they all followed him to the end. They fulfilled his commission, and they truly became his disciples. We can't help but stop for a moment and ask ourselves, are we failing for any of the same reasons that the disciples failed? If so, the grand picture is a great comfort to us and a great call to us. Jesus calls us to come after him. He calls us to count ourselves singularly, holy, and without compromise followers of him not as a part-time expression or add-on to our Christianity, but as the all-consuming center point of our condition and our existence. So in summary today, are we observers? Some of us at a distance, maybe around the church and the gospel, attracted, even amazed, but not recognizing Jesus as Savior and Lord? Perhaps we are assenters, recognizing Christ, but putting a human framework on it and redefining following Jesus in terms of our cultural norms. So we pursue success, position, power, financial status, but call ourselves Christians. Or are we delayers? We understand that to follow Jesus and be his disciple requires total commitment and a reorientation of our lives so that Christ is the center. But we delay making the real change God wants because it's just not the right time yet or we're not quite ready to commit completely. I encourage you to go with me back to the beginning.
If you are a Christian, we began, then you are a saint. You are a holy one. You are set apart. That's why even to the church at Corinth, in that first letter to the Corinthians, at the very beginning, he says, to those who are sanctified and called to be holy, and he's speaking to a church that has all kinds of problems. But see, that doesn't change that if you are saved, you are sanctified. And the word simply means you're set apart. The question for us now is, am I receiving the gift of holiness? Am I set apart as God intends for me to be? There's a story Joseph Stowell tells about a friend of his who broke down in tears as he told how his life had been whiplashed by his own desires and agendas. As he wept, he said, I forgot about following Christ. I've gotten so scrambled up. It's so simple. I want to follow. I just want to follow Christ. Holiness is to follow Christ. Holiness is to be his disciple. Holiness is to be faithful to Jesus in all things and to allow the Holy Spirit to lead and direct us. Well, I pray God's blessing upon you. I pray that he will take through his spirit this study and his word and apply it to our lives. It is a challenging thing to be a follower of Jesus. And it is not some inaccessible thing to be holy. We are holy because we are set apart. The challenge for us every day is to receive the gift that has been given to us. May God bless you. Next month, we're going to consider this general topic of how we receive the gift of holiness and we're going to talk about a phrase that has characterized the understanding of holiness in our movement in the Methodist tradition for uh, a couple of centuries now. And that is the full gospel. The full gospel includes both being saved and being sanctified. Hope you have a wonderful month. God bless you and we'll see you again next time. Thanks so much for listening, and we'd love to hear from you. Share your thoughts, questions, or prayer requests. Visit us at SalvationArmySoundcast.org slash holiness. And if you're enjoying this Bible study, share it with a friend. They can subscribe wherever they get their podcasts.